Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 9, The Green Council. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the ninth episode of House of the Dragon called The Green Council. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are fans of the books. We will avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon though and we'll have a spoiler section at the end and give you a giant heads up for that. So whatever your A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones background, we have a lot to offer tonight. Following on from last week's episode about the death of King Viserys, this episode didn't have a time jump with just a few hours transpiring before the king's body is discovered by a young page. With Rhaenyra and family having left King's Landing for Dragonstone the night before, the focus this time was about the reaction of the Green faction to Viserys' death. With Alicent misunderstanding Viserys' final wishes and believing that he had changed the order of succession to favour her son Aegon with his last breath, she felt justified in calling up upon her fellow Greens to support Aegon's claim and organise themselves as quickly as possible. However, however, other Greens, including her father Otto, were already on a front footing and seemed less inclined to be merciful to Rhaenyra and her children than Alison wants to be. The episode examines how even within a political faction with common goals, there are differences of an opinion and conflict. While others scramble to find Aegon and prop him up as a figurehead king, he seems wholly reluctant to take on that role after a lifetime of feeling rejected by his father. It's clear he's not going to make a great leader, but does anyone really care? In placing a son on the throne without sending word to Dragonstone, Alicent has laid the final foundations for civil war. It's been a long and wonderful setup this season, but we know with Aegon's crowning, there will be no turning back. So we have so much to say today and I can't wait to go into more depth. So without further ado, I'm going to say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. 
Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Happy to see you all, uh, have you all here listening or watching. This episode, like you said, we have a lot to talk about. Featured a couple of big, major departures from the source material. Um, probably, I would think, maybe some of the most significant departures. We're going to get into that very shortly. Welcome back, Emily. Hi. We just want to uh, mention to you all that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons. We will start this stream, as always, with a quick shout-out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Class patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Multude, John Wagarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib-Jab, Hot Dog Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. So, uh, I'm going to get us started tonight in the Red Keep. As Yoke Boy said, the episode opens probably just a few hours after the end of episode eight, which I think would make it the shortest time jump of the season. We're in the Red Keep at night. Hallways are deserted. Everything is in darkness. You've got a sad and somber mood, which is accentuated by this gorgeous piano piece called Lament. Uh, it's highly reminiscent, I thought, of the music from Light of the Seven uh, from Game of Thrones season six finale. Uh, the ep- title of that episode was The Winds of Winter. But if you remember, that is the episode where Cersei blows up the Sept. And once again, Ramin Javadi just hits it out of the park and helps uh, the show prove that sometimes the most compelling way to tell a story is just pure visuals accompanied by a very simple score. So just, I loved this scene. I think it might have been my favorite part of the episode. We see a young page boy making his way along corridors down and down some stairs. Eventually, he finds uh, Allison's maid, Talia, and gives her the news of the king's death. And then it's Talia who breaks the news to Allison. But remember that episode eight confirmed that Talia also works for Myceria, feeding her information about the goings-on at the Red Keep. And sure enough, in spite of Allison's order to uh, tell no one, we soon see Talia lighting a branch of candles in a tower window, which undoubtedly is a signal to someone outside the castle. Allison, on the other hand, hurries to tell her father uh, the news and uh, also to tell him that Viserys, as she understood it, altered this succession with his final words to her, which no one else witnessed. But Otto, being Otto, needs no more than this to immediately put his long-laid plans into action. And one has to wonder, given the depth and breadth of those plans that are soon revealed, how he would have reacted if Viserys hadn't spoken to Alicent in that way. I have to assume that he would still have sort of steamrollered ahead. But, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the dinner from the previous episode, with Alicent apparently accepting... Rhaenyra as the future queen and both making these kind of motions toward reconciliation uh, that would have made it a lot more complicated I think so uh, Alison's mistaken belief I think is a very convenient relief to her father freeing him of the necessity of convincing her to support him uh, in this plan that he's been you know laying out probably for years uh, in spite of Viserys's very public final wishes. Uh, 
Fire and Blood actually describes Viserys's passing in its immediate aftermath like this. Long simmering, the conflict burst open on the third day of the third moon of 129 AC when the ailing, bedridden King Viserys I Targaryen closed his eyes for a nap in the Red Keep of King's Landing and died without waking. His body was discovered by a serving man at the hour of the bat when it was the king's custom to take a cup of Hippocras. The servant ran to inform Queen Alicent whose apartments were on the floor below the king's. So minor differences. Uh, Gildane goes on to note that the plans for how to handle the king's death were laid long before and that servants had been instructed on exactly what to do when it came to pass, which certainly seems to be the case here. Although we do have a slight change in the timing because I'm very nerdy about the Westerosi hours of the evening. The hour of the bat is actually early in the evening, right after sunset. Viserys' death actually takes place following this family dinner and definitely much later in the evening. So probably in order to make the uh, that empty red keep scene much more impactful, this is taking place overnight. Maybe it's the hour of the ghosts or the hour of the owl. Not really clear, but then we get the small council convened, and Tylan Lannister wants to know what couldn't wait another hour. So we think that's probably the hour of the wolf, which is one hour before dawn. And so, having said that, uh, we move on to this small council meeting that gives the episode its title. Yeah, Lady Gwyn, we've finally arrived at this inauspicious meeting, which originally got its name from Grandmaster Munkin in his true telling. No doubt that this is a scene that book readers have been eager to see unfold for a long time. Otto opens the council meeting with news uh, that also serves as a sharp rebuke to Tylan Lannister. He styles Viserys the peaceful and calls him their friend, as if these words will override the fact that they are about to betray their friend's lifelong wishes and plunge a peaceful realm into war. Alicent, frazzled by the death of her husband and, you know, previously unaware of all the plans that the council begins to just roll out, once again shows her naivete as she asks if they'd been planning to install Aegon without her knowledge. There's no attempt to deny it, with staunch Aegon supporter Lord Wilde saying there was no need to sully her with darkling schemes. It's not that Alicent was entirely unaware of this, of course. Back on Driftmark six years ago, her father promised her that they would succeed in making Aegon king. But the reality of how much scheming has already happened seems to hit her like a ton of bricks here. You know, fresh from her tentative reconciliation with Rhaenyra, she appears to be trying to guide the realm towards peace, even if her version of peace, you know, means Aegon is king. This is a major departure from her character in Fire and Blood, who flung slurs at Rhaenyra and hoped the princess would die in childbed and uh, rid the greens of her troublesome claim. The show has clearly given us a very different Alicent from the start, and it seems like her hesitation to charge headlong into the conflict that her father largely fomented continues to drive her actions at the council and afterwards. She's not alone in her shock uh, at the rest of the council's plotting, as we see both Lord Commander Westerling and Master of Coin, Lyman Beesbury, exchange concerned looks as well. Lord Beesbury then stands and reminds them of the oaths that were sworn decades ago to Rhaenyra and states that he knows Viserys would not have changed his mind. He goes on to claim that the king was well the night prior, which is, of course, a bit of a silly claim because we saw what Viserys looked like. But it does nod to something from Fire and Blood quite cleverly. The text says, 
The dwarf mushrooms suggest a more sinister scenario, whereby Queen Alicent hurried King Viserys on his way with a pinch of poison in his Hippocras. Unlikely to be true since his body was discovered before the Hippocras. Kristen Cole takes this last bit as an insult to the queen's honor and slams Beesbury back into a seat, which is done so forcefully that it bludgeons Lord Beesbury's head against the table and his, you know, stone attendance tracker. It feels a bit anticlimactic compared to its descriptions in Fire and Blood, which were divided on how Beesbury died, but there's no avoiding it. The first death of the Dance of the Dragons has occurred. Westerling then draws a sword on Cole, and it seems like they'll come to blows next, but Alicent de-escalates the situation and her trained dog, Cole, steps down. Otto refuses to allow the body to be cleared from the room until their business is finished, which might be another nod to fire and blood, this time to the Green's disrespectful treatment of the king's body. The text says, A day passed, then another. Neither Septons nor Silent Sisters were summoned to the bedchamber where King Viserys lay, swollen and rotting. No bells rang. Ravens flew, but not to Dragonstone. They instead went to Old Town, to Casterly Rock, to River Run, to High Garden, and to many other lords and knights whom Queen Alicent had cause to think may be sympathetic to her son. Otto starts up talk again about how to deal with Rhaenyra and her children, wanting them executed and out of the way for a clean coup. Alicent really loses it here. She can apparently handle usurping, but she'll draw the line at killing her childhood friend and Rhaenyra's children, who, remember, are her step-godsons, or grandsons, excuse me. Tyland, quite cunningly, asks her what she suggests and said. It seems that most of the Green Council is practical enough to realize leaving Aegon's challenger alive is a very dangerous choice to make. Alicent, uh, clearly many steps behind the rest of the council, hasn't thought this through, and when she doesn't have a ready answer, Otto orders the Lord Commander and his knights to Dragonstone to quickly and cleanly take care of Rhaenyra and her son. Yeah, Harold Westerling, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, let us recall, was Rhaenyra's sworn shield before he was Lord Commander, and he's been visibly uncomfortable during these proceedings. Lord Beesbury mentioned how long he's known Viserys. A long time, probably Viserys' entire life. But Sir Harold is probably a close second. He's served in the Kingsguard of Jaehaerys prior to serving Viserys, uh, probably for longer. He was probably with Jaehaerys longer than Otto was, for instance. Otto was only the hand to Jaehaerys for a year or so. So, Harold knows Viserys. He knows his wishes. He's the ultimate Targaryen loyalist, and he's said to be a paragon of chivalry. And so the idea of killing his princess, who was established as the heir to the throne under his watch more than 20 years ago, and her children, really doesn't sit very well with him. At Sir Otto's command, Westerling removes his cloak. You've got to love those quick-release Kingsguard cloaks. And states uh, that he answers to the king. And in the absence of a king, he has no role in these proceedings. Uh, in Fire and Blood, speaking of having no role in these proceedings, uh, Harold Westerling died in 112 AC. In fact, the only mention of him in Fire and Blood is saying that he died. Uh, so many, many years before Viserys died, uh, and he was succeeded in the book at that time by Sir Kristen Cole. So with his expanded role here in the show, allowing the showrunners more time to allow, uh, to align Kristen Cole more firmly with the Greens, Sir Harold's continued presence is a bit of a mystery, meaning that it's very hard for us to predict what he'll do next. 
Uh, we will say that his exit from the small council chamber is highly reminiscent of another Lord Commander's hasty exit following the death of the previous king. And here is the relevant part of Barristan Selmy's exit from the Red Keep. It says he reached up and undid the clasps that held his cloak in place, and the heavy white garment slithered from his shoulders to fall in a heap on the floor. His helmet dropped with a clang. I am a knight, he told them. He opened the silver fastenings of his breastplate and let that fall as well. I shall die a knight. Finally, he drew his sword. He flung it at the foot of the iron throne. Here, boy, melt it down and add it to the others, if you like. It will do you more good than the swords in the hands of these five. Perhaps Lord Stannis will chance to sit on it when he takes your throne. Ouch. <laughs> he took the long way out, his steps ringing loud against the floor and echoing off the bare stone walls. Uh, I did cut out some of the uh, some of the uh, parts where people were making fun of Barristan and Sansa's inner thoughts, but there you go. That's the gist of it. Very similar. Uh, Barristan kind of storms out and is not heard from again for a very long time. So since Sir Harold has no real role in the story that's dictated by fire and blood, his exit leads to the possibility that, like Sir Barristan, He'll reappear at some point in the future, perhaps looking to serve the rightful ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. Could it happen next week? Maybe. We have struggled to find any sign of him in, you know, spoiler shots, but uh, uh, potentially season two? Like, who knows? Uh, could be something completely different happens to him. This is one of those rare occasions in the show where we're not going by the book. So as George would say, I guess we'll just have to keep watching. Absolutely. You know, one of the big successes for me in this scene were the lords and counselors who are our secondary characters. We get so little time with our small counselors, and yet the actors and the relatively scant dialogue characterize each of them really well and faithfully in the scene. I, I talked about the small council in our spoilers section last week, so um, I will get back to that here. Lord Jasper Wilde, a.k.a. Ironrod, uh, you know, being 100% down to clown with these darkling schemes, as long as it ends up with a man sitting the throne. Very accurate to his character. We also have the Grand Maester saying very little, but taking time to check Beesbury for signs of life right after the act. In Fire and Blood, Orwell is one of the primary sources for the events of the dance, and claims that in this meeting he, you know spoke up for Rhaenyra, while others say, more reliably it seems, that it was Beesbury and Beesbury alone. Orwell's lack of dialogue supports the idea that he might retroactively claim that he said more than he did. There's an argument that Fire and Blood being an in-world history was written by the victors, and so this little rewriting of his own role at the Green Council plays into that theme nicely. As for Tylan Lannister, we see him being smug and prideful once again. Our friend Sir Joe on the Radio Westeros Discord said that he enjoyed Tyland quietly jumping out of the way of the Kingsguard and then sitting back down when the danger between Cole and uh, Westerling passed. Last week in our spoiler section, like I said, we talked about this and what side of the war they'll ultimately come down to. So if you missed that but are interested, go back and check it out. I was really delighted to see all their contributions to the council. Yeah, a very interesting scene there. And what happens next is described by the showrunners in the Inside the Episode segment as a race against time, a Hitchcockian suspense story as the Greens race to consolidate power, as well as establish which person within their own ranks will be calling the shots. 
there's a scene in the beginning in Helena's room where she is embroidering while her and Aegon's children, young Jaehaerys and Jaehaera, are playing together. When we first met Helena, we saw that she was a bug fanatic, and here she's stitching together what appears to be a bug of some sort, maybe a spider. We also know from previous episodes that Helena has a special wisdom about her, having predicted that Aemond would need to lose an eye to gain a dragon way before that sequence of events ever happened. She has the gift of dragon dreaming, but it seems like no one around her listens to her or understands that she's always making these offhand prophecies, and it's a shame that this isn't explored further. Here she tells her children's nanny that... It is our fate to crave what is given to another. If one possesses a thing, the other will take it away. So here she's speaking with great clarity, I think, about the nature of possession and power that is very apt, given there's a sort of coup developing following her father's death. Personally, I love Helena, and despite not getting much screen time, these snippets of wisdom and prophecy have really enriched recent episodes in a way that feels very George R. R. Martin, I think. So, Alison and Otto burst into her room asking where Aegon is. Helena seems embarrassed to admit that she doesn't know where he is, and remembering things she said in previous episodes about him only coming to her when he's drunk, we can guess that she's probably quite scared of her brother-stroke husband and not the sort of person to stand up to him given she presents as quite timid. When Helena asks Alison what's happened, it seems, although she doesn't, she does get glimpses of the future, they are either so random or so cryptic that she doesn't get a good grasp of what's happening at all times, so she's a bit confused. Alison tries to sit next to her to tell her that her father is dead, but Helena seems extremely uncomfortable being touched and she visibly flinches. She cuts Alison off and tells her mother urgently, there is a beast beneath the boards, which of course is a line of prophecy she first muttered last week around the dinner table when Viserys were trying to bring the family together. There was a lot of fan speculation about what this line meant. I personally thought it was something from the future of the story that I can't really go into because of spoilers, but book readers will probably know what I'm talking about. However, at the tail end of the episode, we now know Rhaenys comes up through the floor of the dragon pit on the back of her dragon melees. So that was probably, I think, what Helena was seeing in her dragon dreams, remembering that prophecies are often figurative in their language. Of course, there will be more on that scene later, but here we see how uncomfortable her seeing snippets of the future makes her. She's clearly tormented by the idea of this beast beneath the boards. Being married to a brother who has already been shown to be abusive, Helena strikes as a, as a very sympathetic character, who, given she'll soon be queen, will surely be caught up between the political machinations of those around her. In this cutthroat world, there's an innocence about Helena, and it's no wonder that fans love her for it. The scene ends with Aemond walking into the room. He must have heard that something's going on. 
the framing, Alison talking to Helena and then Eamon coming in is very similar to the scene from episode six where we first see Alison interacting with Helena and then Eamon, which was also written by Sarah Hess for what, what it's worth. As this is a race against time, we quickly cut to the next move. Yes, we do. So Otto finds Sir Eric, that's Eric with an E, sharpening his sword, wanting to know Aegon's whereabouts. Eric basically says he's not sure, admitting that Aegon uses his authority over his sworn shield to order him away so that he can then escape into the city to satiate his basest desires. Eric appears ashamed of that fact, and once again, we're reminded of the conflicting loyalties that come with knighthood, and particularly an appointment to the Kingsguard. He admits he knows where to look for Aegon, and Otto orders him and his twin, Sir Eric, Eric with an A, uh, to find Aegon. He does not want them wearing their white cloaks, which is both practical for a stealth mission, I've got to say, and will also help obscure the fact that anything is wrong. Remember, news of the king's death is still, for all they know, completely locked down within the Red Keep at this point. Otto closes the scene by saying that they must bring Aegon to him and him alone. Given the exchange between Otto and Allison earlier, it's clear that the Hand is attempting to control as many pieces on the board as possible to ensure that his long-laid plans go off without a hitch, even if that hitch might be his own daughter. Mm. <laughs> True. Uh, the next scene is very brief. Uh, it's Rainey's Princess Rainey's sleeping in her chamber. Uh, we see her wake up. Some noise has disturbed her. She's aware that she's just been locked in. Uh, and when no one answers her calls at the door, she goes to the window and looks out to see that people are being rounded up. Uh, we get to see where some of the people are taken. The servants go down to the black cells immediately to keep the news from spreading. And Talia is actually among them. And she's shown asking for a guard. And then we get to see Lara Strong lurking ominously in the corridor. Uh, Fire and Blood tells us, those servants who knew of the king's passing were sent to the dungeons. Sir Christian Cole was given the task of taking into custody such blacks as remained at court, those lords and knights who might be inclined to favor Princess Rhaenyra. Do them no violence unless they resist, Sir Otto Hightower commanded. Such men as bend the knee and swear fealty to King Aegon shall suffer no harm at our hands. So uh, we'll see what happens to the lords and knights that were rounded up shortly. Okay, let's talk about Alison and Kristen. Following Otto sending the Cargill twins out to find Aegon, Kristen Cole comes in to see Alison and informs her of the latest developments. Alison is trying to find her son first because she wants to influence him before her father does. I really like that there are factions and then there are factions within factions throughout this story. It gives more nuance to this whole setup than simply saying... Here's one side against another. Everyone has their own idea of what they would like to happen politically. And I think this is a good reflection of real world politics. Alison concedes that given Eric is Aegon's sworn shield, Otto now has the advantage. Alison gives an impassioned plea to Kristen to find Aegon, show his loyalty and bring him to her first. Then she whispers in his ear that... Everything you feel for me as your queen. And that line seems strangely intimate there. 
I'm not sure where the show will go with the Kristen Allison romance, but there is certainly some groundwork going on if they chose to take that path. At the least, Allison is sort of manipulating Kristen, and we'll get to this more later, but there's definitely some power games going on between her, Kristen, and Laris, and she seems to be manipulating and is in turn being manipulated by these people at different times in the episode. So some complex dynamics are going on. That's great character work, I think, and no less than you'd expect from this story. Kristen, of course, vows not to fail his queen. And there behind him, Eamon's voice interrupts the intimate moment by saying, I'll come with you. Alicent protests, but it makes sense that Eamon does go along with Kristen because he's one of the few people to know of his brother's doings. It's interesting to consider here what Eamon's motives are. He seems very quick to volunteer himself to go along. I find it very unlikely that Eamon just simply wants to tag along and just genuinely be helpful. We know he's an ambitious guy who feels more worthy and fit for rule than Aegon. So the question is, what would he have done with Aegon if he'd managed to find him down some dark alley somewhere out of view? And we did discuss this. We were on Joe Magician's channel on Sunday evening. We did talk about this. Would Aemond have told his brother to run off somewhere and make sure none of the Kingsguard got to him before he left? Or does the possibility that he could kill Aegon cross his mind? It's interesting to wonder how far Aemond would go in this situation if he thought he could get away with murder. He's certainly keen to go along. And when Kristen nods his approval, the pair leave in haste and we see the deep look of worry on Alicent's face. She's now left alone to consider what might transpire if Otto is able to exert his influence before her. Mm, well, speaking of Otto, uh, now we get to see what happened to those uh, nobles and knights who had been rounded up and brought before him um, to sort of give their pledge of loyalty. Uh, not being a member of the royal family, uh, he's in the throne room and he's standing in front of the Iron Throne, but there are no Kingsguard present because it's just the hand. So all the guards are dressed in Hightower green. When uh, Otto demands that these people who were judged to be potentially loyal to Rhaenyra bend the knee to Aegon, most comply immediately. But we see uh, Lord Merriweather attempt to leave, saying he must consult his house. Uh, the hand makes it clear that no one's going to leave without making their choice. And so Lord Merriweather and Lady Fell decline to bend the knee stating that they'll be, they're going to keep their vows to Rhaenyra, and they're summarily removed by Hightower Guardsmen. That's enough to convince most of the others who had been hesitating to comply, but Lord Caswell, looking especially nervous, is the very last to do so. Throughout these proceedings, you see that Lara Strong is watching, no doubt, observing exactly how each individual reacted to the demands of the Hand. Fire and Blood does report that eventually Lady Fell and Lord Merriweather were executed for staying true to their vows to Rhaenyra, following old Lord Beesbury to the grave for their loyalty. 
Uh, one twist missing from the show so far is that one of the Kingsguard who served Viserys and then Aegon is actually a Sir Willis Fell, so it was related to one of these uh, early uh, nobles who's executed. Uh, their exact relationship isn't known, but I think that's interesting. He uh, kind of put me in mind of the uh, of the Swan. He was the Swan family in the main series who just sort of covered all the bases with their loyalties. <laughs> uh, Shortly afterwards, we do get to see a scene of uh, Lord Caswell mounting a horse in the castle yard and waiting for the gates to be opened for him. And what follows is the slowest gate opening scene, I think, in history. Uh, I think it actually cuts back and forth to other things while the gate is being opened. It seems like it should have been a lot easier than that. But of course, we're building tension. Uh, the viewer has probably get arrived at the conclusion that this isn't going to end well. Uh, of course, it doesn't. Because Lara Strong had been observing Lord Caswell's hesitation to kneel in the throne room and had him followed. So Lord Caswell is seized just at the last moment and brought before Sir Otto, who orders him pretty quickly to be given to the king's justice. Uh, we'll see later that Caswell was hung inside the Red Keep, which is a, another departure from Fire and Blood. Uh, just of no hanging is a grave insult to a man of this rank. Usually nobles, if they're going to be executed, are given the sword, and thus you get all the heads mounted on spikes. But uh, yeah, he's hanging right inside the inside the courtyard of the Red Keep. So far, what we're seeing are mostly minor lords declaring their support for Rhaenyra, with Otto suggesting that many of the more significant houses will be persuaded to support Aegon. Of course, time will tell on that front, and I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about Rhaenyra's loyalists in the spoiler section. So let's uh, right now move on to the next scene. Um. Yeah, we get a small scene that shows the silent sisters preparing the body of the king. Alicent's there overseeing this, but it's a very different setting than Vaemon Valarian's burial preparations, which were done in a more public part of the Red Keep. Instead, it seems that the sisters have come to the king's apartments and that they're alone. As silent sisters, perhaps they can be trusted to keep the news quiet, whereas maesters and servants aren't bound by vows of silence and are therefore less trustworthy. This is a nice nod to that same bit we mentioned uh, towards the beginning of the stream, where the news of Viserys' death was very suppressed uh, as his body began to decay alone in a sealed room. Alicent is more sympathetic in this portrayal, and as she grieves over her late husband, shedding tears alone where no one can see it, it's hard to imagine this version of the character being so uncaring that she would let him rot. Uh, regardless, it's clear that both she and Otto are prioritizing crowning Aegon before laying Viserys to rest. You have to wonder what the small folk of King's Landing must have been thinking, being told that the king has died, but really having none of the traditions surrounding a king's death to communicate that period of, or change you know there's no bells rung there's no viewings in the sept no cremation by dragon fire we'll get back to that later though here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Okay, so next up, we're going to go back to Rainey's. Locked in her room, she gets a visitor. It's Alicent, come to talk to her. Rainey's is extremely indignant at being held in her chamber uh, with no explanation. When she sees Allison, she quickly guesses the reason, though, and the usurpation. Uh, Rainey's really doesn't believe for a moment that Viserys changed his mind, but Allison doesn't seem to want to spend much energy trying to convince her. Instead, she appeals to Rainey's history as the queen who never was and her rights being passed over. She's so eager to find common ground, uh, obviously placing her own son in that role of the rightful heir being passed over, that she totally misses the irony of the role that sex played in the decision of the Great Council of 101 in Viserys's succession and actually the justification that's now being used by her own father in small council to elevate Aegon over his older sister. In an effort to turn Rhaenys against Rhaenyra, she goes on to catalog all the woes of Rhaenys's life. Her children are dead, her son cuckolded, her husband gone in the stepstones for these past six years. And it seems like she's just going to, she's laying everything at Rhaenyra's door. Although maybe there's a bit of a shorthand for Damon's involvement in this as well. Rhaenys states, the word of my house is not fickle. Remember that just the day before she declared in court that, uh, you know, she supported Rhaenyra. Um, and while with those words, she almost certainly meant House Valerian, whose house words are the old, the true and the brave. Don't forget that Rhaenys was born a Targaryen, something that I think is emphasized when she later addresses Alicent as Alicent Hightower. Uh, if Alicent is to be identified by her birth name, then so should Rhaenys be, after all. The queen continues in her effort to win Rhaenys to her cause, addressing her as cousin, yet another reason for Rhaenys to make that decision, that, that distinction, Alicent Hightower, uh, telling her... You should have been queen by blood and temperament, but here we are. We do not rule, but we can guide the men that rule. Alicent uh, seems to be dismissing her husband as king and seeks to place Rhaenys on her own level. Placing themselves in the shadow of powerful men seems like a strange tactic to take with Rhaenys, who might have been queen in her own right. But when Rhaenys asks about her dragon... Ah, we realize why she's so important to the Greens. Alicent tries to brush past this issue by suggesting that with Maelys, Rhaenyra might be, or without Maelys, Rhaenyra might be persuaded to negotiate. Uh, we know that Alicent is desperately seeking a solution where her son is safely installed on the throne, but without the ugly necessity of killing his half-sister, his uncle, and their five children. If convincing Rainey's to use her dragon for the Greens helps her to achieve that, Alicent would probably pay any price. In, in fact, she offers Rainey's driftmark for herself and her granddaughters, which is probably, you know, shorthand for saying, you know, the girls will be safe. 
um, from whatever purge happens. Rainey seems impressed with Allison's negotiations for a moment, to which Allison primly responds, a true queen counts the cost to her people. But Rainey's is a lot older and wiser than Allison Hightower, and she sees exactly what underpins Allison's power. It's not true agency, but the machine of patriarchy. And yet you toil still in service to men. You desire not to be free, but to make a window in the wall of your prison. I love that line. Have you never imagined yourself on the Iron Throne? And Allison has no answer to that, leaves and instructs Rhaenys on the way out to ring the bell when she's ready to give her answer. Yeah, now kind of to the streets with this high stakes game of hide and seek kicking off. We see Aemond taking Cole through the Street of Silk. It's worth noting that they appear to have their own kind of crime hoodies, as the fandom has dubbed them, but and Cole with a kind of beanie hat. But their disguises don't work as well, given that Aemond has a very noticeable eye patch. Uh, the show is really establishing a connection between Sir Kristen and Prince Aemond uh, with their long history in the training yard that we've seen, and now they're working together to serve Allison's interests. I anticipate we'll see them working together quite a bit more from here on out. Amond, certain that he can provide valuable support to Cole here because of his history with his brother, leads the knight to a brothel, which he admits Prince Aegon took him to when he was, frankly, way too young for that. Amond clearly was affected by this and sounds uncomfortable repeating some of what Aegon said to him about it being time to get it wet. Cole looks about as uncomfortable as I felt with that turn of phrase, saying every woman is an image of the mother and must be treated with respect. Really, Sir Kristen, every woman? This is a severe departure from the language that he used to refer to Princess Rhaenyra in the past, as we know. A sex worker opens the door and after a little back and forth, basically laughs at the idea that Aegon is there. He hasn't frequented the brothels of the Street of Silk in years and has far more depraved taste now, it seems. This sets up how little Aemon really does know Aegon and indicates that the two have not been close for some time. After getting some more information from the worker, the realm's two least sex-positive men take their quest to Flea Bottom, hoping that this new lead will steer them to their quarry. There are some scenes that are intercut with this, but we do return to Kristen and Aemond a bit later in the episode, and they've made their way to Flea Bottom, which doesn't look quite as raucous during the daytime as it did when Damon and Rhaenyra visited back in episode four. Aemond chooses this moment to soft launch his pitch for taking Aegon's place on the throne. He appeals to Cole, who he generally considers an honorable man for some reason, uh, by contrasting himself with his brother. He calls Aegon an unworthy wastrel, while he himself has studied, trained, and prepared for a role that he cannot have due to his birth order. He revisits a scene that we've seen from Aemon previously, in that if Aegon doesn't want his wife, his duty, his throne, Aemon is more than ready to step in. He's plainly ignoring Aegon's son, Jaehaerys, in all of this, and potentially a second son, although I don't know that it's clear the second son has been born yet. Jaehaerys would definitely come before Aemon in the line of succession, uh, being Aegon's eldest son. I've seen some people suggest that Aemon wouldn't let the child get in the way of his ascension, while others seem to wonder if Jaehaerys is even Aegon's son, given the closeness that we've seen between Helena and Aemon. 
Either way, not looking to get into that right now, but, uh, a, you know, a toddler with a claim is entirely ignored in this quick exchange. We really don't even have a chance to get much of a reaction from Cole as the action cuts away. Yes, it cuts away to Eric and Eric, who in the meantime head into the heart of Flea Bottom, and we see that they are clueless to the fact that they're being tracked by one of Mysaria's spies. The twins hear loud cheers coming from one of the buildings and head inside to look for Aegon. The crowd noises are coming from a fighting ring, but not just any fighting ring. This one revolves around young children who are being pitted against each other for the amusement of adults. Eric looks rightfully disgusted and asks how old these children are. Eric guesses at 10 years old and says the children grow their nails and have their teeth filed for the fighting. And this really puts us in mind of the main series with Roj and Biter. Biter had also had his teeth filed to sharp points, probably so he could fight dogs and be more effective in the pits like these children. Very, very dark. Yeah, what a scene in Flea Bottom. Re really disgusted to see this. And we can guess that the gold cloaks must be turning a blind eye to these despicable events, meaning there's a lot of corruption going on in the city that's manifesting here in the abuse and exploitation of children. Although in Fire and Blood, Eric is Rhaenyra's sworn shield and by now is on Dragonstone and not part of the events, here... He's shown in this canon uh, to actually be Aegon's sworn shield and therefore is privy to Aegon's lifestyle. He seems disgusted but not surprised at this scene and tells his brother that not only does Aegon frequent this place but he's also fathered children here which paired with the fact that young children are being exploited in this scene does make us consider how old the mothers of Aegon's children might be. After last week, there was already every reason in the world to really hate Aegon, but now it just gets worse and worse. What's interesting in the scene between Eric and Eric is that the former begins to try and convince the latter that, quote, Aegon is unfit to rule. Eric, though, puts the emphasis on doing one's duties and says that they swore a vow. In the main series, we get a lot of commentary via Kingsguard members like Barrist and Selmy and Jamie Lannister about the theme of honour versus duty. If you swear a sacred vow to a king and the king wants to do terrible things that dishonour you as a knight, then how do you react? It's a really uncomfortable question and usually causes a high degree of cognitive dissonance within the heart of Kingsguard members. But here we see the tension, not within one heart, but between two twins, who both seem to have very different ideas. We haven't known Eric and Eric for long, but already we can see that cracks are opening up between them. And as identical as they may be, their ideals are not aligned. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see if this friction grows and how these cracks grow with them. Before the conflict can grow on here, though, Mysaria's spy approaches them and says that she has knowledge of Aegon's whereabouts. With the spy working for Mysaria, 
and the twins doing Otto's bidding. We're seeing the layers of the onion in the information trade, these complex webs that make up spy networks. And ultimately, this leads to Otto later meeting with Mysaria herself. Yeah, as it turns out, the promise of a conversation with the White Worm will get Otto to come do his own dirty work. The whereabouts of Aegon are critical to his plotting, and even if Otto is a big Aemon fan, as he's shown to be uh, in previous episodes, explaining away Aegon's absence and crowning Aemon is an unnecessary complication that you know probably threatens the iron grip that the Green Council currently has over the city. Otto tries to confirm if the woman before him really is indeed the White Worm, uh, which tells us that she's kept her identity very well hidden, despite selling secrets to him for at least the last 15 years or so. She offers him condolences on the death of King Viserys, which is such a power play. It lets him know right away that she knows the secret that he thought he'd been doing a great job of keeping quiet. She gets paid uh, to keep talking and makes it clear that she has the prince safely tucked away. Given the news from the Red Keep, someone might have come looking for him. She's demonstrating her wisdom and her network here, and Otto takes note. He presses her for the location of the soon-to-be king, uh, but Mysaria isn't willing to give up the information without, you know, the payment that she desires. Rather than more coin, she says she wants the, the, those child fighting pits that Aegon frequents dealt with. She says the crown either tolerates or ignores them because they can, but now it's she who has Aegon and therefore has the power. This reminds me a little bit of Varys, the spider, who is often ruminating on the meaning and the source of power. He's another spy master who, through his backstory and his connection to the commoners in their spy network, now recognizes how much power the common people really do have. Instead of intimidating Otto uh, with this statement, he plays it cool and tells Masseria that he'll remember their conversation. At the time, it's open-ended whether he meant that he, you know, promised to look into those fighting pits or into her for, you know, threatening him, basically. She presumably gives away the location, and it's safe to assume that Kristen and Amond, who'd been spying on the conversation from the beginning, also overhear, or could just follow the twins to the hiding place. Yeah, they're not exactly really great covert operatives. <laughs> they haven't exactly been subtle, uh, but they do manage to find Aegon at the Great Sept once they have him in hand uh, after considerable resistance, uh, who tells them at one point that he wants his mother, which is kind of pathetic. They tell him that, nope, they're going to go instead to meet his grandfather outside the city walls Uh it's kind of unclear what Otto's intentions were. I mean, probably he was just hoping to keep Aegon away from Alicent and her own hunters. Uh, although considering both Aemond and Aegon mentioned the prospect of him taking ship for the Far East, it is kind of tempting to wonder if Aegon's intention was something a little more nefarious. Uh, probably not, though. He's been building towards this moment for, you know, decades, probably. So uh, just wants to keep him away from his mother However, as it happens, uh, Kristen and Amond are waiting outside. So uh, when Eric and Eric and Aegon come out the door, uh, Kristen and Eric immediately draw swords and begin to fight on the steps while Aegon makes another break for it, only to be stopped by his brother. Uh, Eric, that's Eric with an E, Aegon's uh, sworn sword, 
is just standing to the side watching the action. He is now fully convinced that this isn't the king that he wants to serve, and he just sort of melts away during the course of, of the struggle. Uh, the, the two pairs of men continue to struggle. Uh, Amond agrees with his brother a thousand percent when he says he's not suited to rule, but Amond is doing his best to be dutiful. Aegon begs Aemond to let him do what uh, Kristen suggested to Rhaenyra and what Laenor actually did with Carl Gorey, run away to Essos to live out his life under an assumed name and let his brother take the throne. Uh, personally, I gave him about three months to survive if they were to allow that. But even as Aemond appears to sort of hesitate, at least he's he's thinking about it because we know that he would love love nothing more uh very tempted and Kristen shows up and that's it Kristen takes Aegon in hand and leaves a defeated Eric uh behind while they take possession of the wayward prince and checkmate Alicent speaking of Alicent uh, we see her next uh with her father Otto is shown again in the tower of the hand writing letters Otto Hightower is known to be a prolific letter writer throughout the pages of Fire and Blood, and particularly during the dance. So I love that they've been showing us this aspect of his character since really early on. He knows that getting word out to key allies now is critical, and even after a very busy day of chasing down Aegon, meeting with spies, he continues hard at work. Now Alicent arrives, and he treats her very childishly, saying, well played, in reference to her champion Kristen getting to Aegon before the Cargill twins could. She refutes that it's not a game, and he says she treats it like one. Uh, Say what you will about his morals, but Otto has certainly been working hard at his goal for a long time and clearly finds this newfound backbone that Allison is displaying frustrating. The language he chooses here is meant to belittle or manipulate her, and when he notices that she's not taking well to the insinuations that she's playing, he switches tack, trying to evoke an emotional, familial connection that will get her back under his power. We get that delightful line from one of the trailers, whatever our differences, our hearts remain as one, he says, to which she refutes, our hearts were never one. Despite Otto's words to her on Driftmark years ago, he never really, you know, transformed into treating her as an equal. He just let her believe that, you know, she was a player instead of his pawn to move about the board. She's beginning to accept this now after the Green Council, the race to find Aegon, and the especially eye-opening conversation with Rhaenys about the nature of power. Otto then argues that he's doing what he must, uh, and he really lays his philosophy out here. Sacrifices aren't easy, but Rut Ruler hasn't had to choose the safety of the many over the lives of the few. This reminds us of some other characters from the main series, such as Tywin asking Tyrion, explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. We also see Stannis grapple with sacrificing the lives of those who have king's blood in order to, you know, bring on victory or fulfill a prophecy. This idea that killing a few in the name of future peace or realistically future success for the murderer and their cause is all over A Song of Ice and Fire and the pages of our own histories as well. But Allison has a great reply to this, saying, reluctance to murder is not a weakness. She then reminds him who has the power in this situation. She has Aegon. She calls the shots. They will send real terms to Rhaenyra because Viserys would have wanted mercy for his daughter. 
Kristen Cole will become Lord Commander. Aegon will be crowned immediately at dawn using the crown of his namesake, Aegon the Conqueror. All of King's Landing will attend and the king will wield Blackfire. She's pulling in all these symbols of Targaryen power and linking them to Aegon. A wise branding decision when you think about it. You know, we know later in the history is Daemon Blackfire has been given possession of the sword Blackfire. And that's seen as a huge signal that he, not his trueborn half-brother, is meant to rule. Elsa understands that the illusion of power is critical now as they seize the throne. The small folk must buy into the idea that Aegon is their king, and all these props and set pieces in the audience will help authenticate that. The only thing more Targaryen than a king named Aegon wearing the Conqueror's crown wielding Blackfire in the dragon pit would be, I don't know, a real dragon? Anyway, Alicent says her piece, and Otto, you know, doesn't get much of a rebuttal, He likely agrees with much of the plan and sees the wisdom in her desire to act fast, but, you know, he has to still get in the last word here in an attempt to wrestle back some control of the daughter that he's used to maneuvering a lot more easily. So he says, you look so much like your mother in certain lights. She's, you know, grossed out by this, I think, and sighs and walks out, and he says to himself, as you wish. After Otto makes this creepy, you're just like your mother comment, which signifies the control he's had and continues to have over his daughter and calls back to those early scenes of him telling her to wear her mother's dress. She leaves the room, no doubt seeking a moment for herself. But as she pours herself a drink, Laris Strong sort of creeps out from the shadows and there's another eye roll from Alison we can tell immediately that she does not want to be alone in this room with Laris. The hour is late, she tells him. Laris replies that he's found out something she should know, and Alison looks almost like she's about to cry, and we sense something really weird is going on between these two. In previous episodes, we've seen them dining together, and then after Laris had his family killed... And we know he used these circumstances to sort of bind them together in a way that seems increasingly creepy as time has gone on. And all the time we've been wondering, what exactly is driving Laris's character? What are his motives? Remember that after the burning of Harrenhal, Laris told Alison that he would find a way for her to repay him. And this scene here answered a lot of those questions a lot more bizarrely than anyone would have guessed. Not that this fetish is unusual or bizarre in itself, but having it as your character's central motive certainly is. So Laris has information on how Otto found Aegon first. Alicent sighs and looks down at the floor in shame and we sense there's a quid pro quo situation going on that is demeaning to her. There's already been a close-up of Laris's club foot and now we see Alicent taking off her shoes. Laris responds by conveying some more information about a web of spies that Otto has been using. But he stops short of telling her his full knowledge. For that, she needs to take her stockings off. And Laris Laris is watching on and he seems transfixed. The back and forth between them very much reminds me of Silence of the Lambs, where Clarice Starling 
has to reveal information about her childhood to Hannibal Lecter in return in return for details of a serial killer she's trying to capture. But anyway, in return for the stockings off, Laris reveals that one of the spies was Talia, her lady-in-waiting. We've previously seen Talia imprisoned with Laris lurk- while Laris was lurking outside the cell. So it's a good bet that he had her tortured in order to unravel this web. He concludes that the head of the network needs to be killed and we realise that Laris is offering to do it for her, providing he gets something in the bargain. By now, we can pretty much tell what he wants and Alison puts her feet on the couch and looks away as Laris unzips. Wow, it's a shocking scene. Lady Gwyn was next to me when we watched it and she she burst out with, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in Game of Thrones. And yeah, the idea that Laris is motivated primarily by a foot fetish is you know, quite a silly character motive, I think. And there has been many memes and jokes and people finding humour in the darkness of this scene. But for Alison's character, this is certainly an abusive situation. For all of her ambition to be an autonomous, powerful woman, men are still seeking to control her. And in this case, Laris has a strange hold over her and is using her for his sexual gratification. From his perspective, it seems he's feeding on an obsession with feet stemming from his own disability. But of course, dynamics like this are often about power. Surely he gets off on the fact that of all the feet in the Seven Kingdoms, he has access to the Queen's feet. And I guess he must feel extremely powerful here, as abusive men do in these types of situations. So... Yeah, I don't know what you all think of these scenes, but as I said, it was something of a shock. And after a brief montage of the greens, then we return to Princess Rainey's and she is still locked in her chamber. Yeah, she she's locked in. It's dark, clearly very late at night, but she hears a voice outside her door and in bursts Sir Eric with an E, Cargill, last seen letting his brother fight Kristen one-on-one over who could deliver Aegon to their patron first. It's clear in this moment what uh, that he means what he says, that he cannot let this treachery stand. While he may not have a particularly strong allegiance to Rhaenyra, he sure has had enough of Prince Aegon and the schemings of the Greens to crown an unworthy candidate for their personal gain. Rhaenys needs very little prompting, and off the pair go, sneaking through hidden passages and corridors of the Red Keep. They pass through a courtyard where Lord Caswell has been hanged, confirming for Rainies that the Greens have already drawn first blood in their quest for power. She gets one good long look at the skull of Balerion on her way out, and this likely sticks in her head as she makes her next moves. Earlier we saw Viserys tell Rhaenyra that the dragons are the true power of House Targaryen, not the throne or the sword or the crown, not even Valyrian blood. And I think... She's remembering this about her house when she later makes her appearance at Aegon's coronation, which is full of kind of those false or lesser symbols of Targaryen power. Uh, As they escape in the middle of the night, we get a very quick shot of Myceria's manse burning. A cloaked man is fleeing the scene, and he's got a small pin on his cloak, which may or may not have been that, you know, uh, symbol of Larry's clubfoot. 
I think the audience is supposed to be unsure at this point. Was it Otto getting retribution on his source for daring to speak truth to power? Was it Laris making good on his agreement with Alicent to take care of the queen bee and scattering the the hive uh, who spy on her and her family? I think the latter is much more compelling as Otto is generally pretty intelligent and has been leveraging the white worm's intel for a long time. Besides, Laris stands to gain the most if Maseria is killed. Those worker bees may go looking for a new queen. Nobody said the queen bee had to be a queen or a bee. Perhaps a firefly instead? You know, dawn breaks and we see Eric and Rainey's again on the streets of King's Landing. Rainey's makes it clear she will not leave Maylie's, stating it as a fact rather than a, as a plea to her protector. Eric says there's no way she could get into the dragon pit, thinking be, they'll be safer on foot. There will be surely, you know, guards stationed and waiting for her, assuming this is where she might go, he reminds her. Considering all the evidence in both book and show that the Greens have been preparing for this moment for a very long time, this is a pretty reasonable assumption for Eric to make. And besides, he knows Maylees will likely accept her rider, but what about a spare? Before the conversation goes much further, there's yelling and prodding, and we see the gold cloaks beginning to corral and direct all the small folks somewhere. Rainey's and Eric gets get forced apart. It's a little scary for a second and all seems lost until the queen that never was realizes where the crowd is heading. The site of Aegon's coronation, the dragon pit. So it, Rainey said, love that look on her face when she realizes where they're going. She's just getting swept away to exactly where she wants to be. Uh, inside the dragon pit, uh, there are some preparations going on. Alicent had decreed to her father that Aegon would be crowned at dawn in a ceremony at the Dragon Pit with all the residents of King's Landing commanded to attend. She was savvy enough to decide, like Emily was saying earlier, that her son would be given all the visible symbols of Targaryen kingship. He had the name of the Conqueror. He would, in fact, be only the second king to bear that name. And he would also wear the Conqueror's crown, carry his famed Valyrian steel sword. And speaking of Valyrian steel... I want to mention that there's been uh, considerable confusion amongst fans about the Conqueror's crown. Both the World of Ice and Fire and George's descriptions of the Targaryen kings from 2005 for the artist Amok for his contributions to the Fantasy Flight Games art book describe the Conqueror's crown as, quote, a simple circlet of Valyrian steel set with big square cut rubies. But the same crown is repeatedly called an iron and ruby crown in Fire and Blood. So whether this is a retcon or an error, um, the part of George and his editors is uh, up for debate. But the fact is, the show seems to be using the fire and blood description. The crown of the conqueror that we saw definitely seemed to be made of a dark gray, heavy metal, probably iron, set with large rubies. And then we see a brief scene of it made ready for the coronation, along with the sacred oils that will be used to anoint Aegon in the name of the Seven. Following this, we get a scene where Alicent and Aegon are speeding towards the dragon pit in that royal wheelhouse. Yeah, and we get a look inside that wheelhouse. This is going to be the final moment of privacy between mother and son before he is prevent, uh, presented to the small folk. Aegon cuts a reluctant figure for someone who is about to be named king and inherits so much power Alicent tells him to have the decency to look grateful, sort of shaming him. But Aegon is so despondent, 
He can't even feign an interest in his position, a position others would certainly kill to be in. In the past couple of episodes, we've seen how awful Aegon is, and Watchers are by now having serious reservations how things are going to go, granting someone of his dark character with even more power. Yet, we've never fully understood why exactly he is the way he is until this scene, I think. When he answers his mother's encouragement, he says, My father never wanted this. As I said, Aegon's done some horrific things recently, and there's certainly no forgiving him for his ill deeds. I'm not trying to do that, but in terms of understanding the character and his motivations, these few lines about the relationship with his father speak volumes. He says Viserys favoured Rhaenyra's claim because he simply didn't like Aegon, and although Viserys had made up his mind about Rhaenyra before Aegon was born, we can see that from Aegon's point of view that it might have seemed that his father was rejecting him on a personal basis. The truth is that while Viserys was going to stick with Rhaenyra is there no matter what probably, he did also seem to neglect his children with Alison, I think. So it's easy to see why Aegon feels rejected by his father, feeling like one of your parents doesn't love you and internalising that pain can be a destructive force and it's clear from this scene that that is the root of his self-loathing. Like I said, given the gravity and depravity of his bad behaviour, this excuses nothing. But I think it was important to take a minute to understand Aegon's inner demons right before he accepts the power of the crown. Alicent attempts to encourage him by telling him that Viserys ultimately wanted you to be king. And Aegon, just he can't believe it. He, he laughs at the suggestion and says, don't toy with me, mother. When Aegon uh, Alicent produces Aegon the Conqueror's Valyrian steel dragon uh, dagger, which Viserys always kept by his side, Aegon seems tempted by the power, and he starts listening to to what his mother's telling him. She asks him that when he's in power, not to heed Otto's advice to kill Rhaenyra and her children. But then, given what we've learned about Aegon's sadism. In recent episodes, viewers would be right in not banking on Aegon taking a virtuous path here. When he doesn't answer, but instead asks his mother point blank if she loves him, we see his torment served up on a platter. Aegon just felt unloved, so he self he he loathed himself as a result, and that led to bad behaviours, which led to his parents chiding him, and that sort of creates a feedback loop of more negative attention from his parents and more self-loathing and spirals down like that. And yeah, unforgivable behaviours that are not relatable in that sense. But it's good to know where these villainous traits are rooted. He's a boy who felt rejected by his parents And that part of him is relatable. Yeah, I agree. Well, well summarized. Uh, So presumably from the wheelhouse, they eventually arrive at the at the dragon pit. And this is where the coronation is going to happen. Uh, It seems pretty safe to say that Aegon's coronation is modeled after real world ceremonies, uh, specifically that of the kings of England. And let me read you a brief description of that ceremony 
uh, which I lifted right from good old Wikipedia. The essential elements of the coronation have remained largely unchanged for the past thousand years. The sovereign is first presented to and acclaimed by the people. The sovereign then swears an oath to uphold the law and the church. Following that, the monarch is anointed with holy oil, invested with regalia, and crowned before receiving the homage of their subjects. So Aegon's ceremony follows this model more or less exactly. He's presented to the people by his grandfather and his hand, Sir Otto, and enters the dragon pit under a very long saber arch formed by gold cloaks. Uh, This is a real-world custom, too, uh, but a much less ancient one. It's typically used in military weddings and... uh, wouldn't have happened in the time period that we're usually emulating in Game of Thrones, uh, House of the Dragon, which is, uh, according to George, supposed to be about the 14th century. So uh, this is one element of the ceremony that I found took me out of the moment. It didn't quite fit the period. Uh, There were some other things, too, really (laughs) history nerdy objections. But nonetheless, it was very impressive looking and cool bit of choreography. I don't know how they pulled that off with just, you know, basically an hour to plan it. So uh, kudos to them for doing that. Then you get uh, on the dais, Aegon is anointed with the holy oils by Septon Eustace. Uh, Royal regalia basically are the visible symbols of kingship. Generally, you get a scepter or a ceremonial sword or something like that. And, of course, Aegon is already bearing the most potent symbol of Targaryen kingship, the sword Blackfire. And, by the way, he also has the Valyrian steel dagger that was uh, always carried by his father. So he has all of the regalia. And then, after being anointed, he is crowned by Kristen Cole, the new Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, the man who is known to history as the Kingmaker. And this is the reason why. Aegon was then presented to the crowd by Septon Eustace for the acclamation, and he gets quite an enthusiastic reception when he brandishes Blackfire for them. Uh, they, they love that sword, but they also maybe approve of him. Uh, this And this could be the first time in his life where he basically experiences this unconditional acceptance. The smile on his face certainly seems to reflect that, that he's very happy with this positive attention. So uh, it is, however, worth noting that uh, none of the small folk uh, would be in the know as to exactly what the ins and outs are of the succession. Uh, They have no idea that Aegon is technically usurping his sister and that she doesn't even know yet that her father is dead. So, you know, they're just going along with it because this is what they've been told is happening. Uh, Real-world coronations also are typically held many months after the death of the previous sovereign for the reason that death usually entails some period of mourning, and it's seen as quite inappropriate to have a joyful ceremony like a coronation during that time of mourning. Only successions that are bound to be challenged will feature this sort of hurried coronation, and we know that the Greens fully expect to be challenged, uh, basically crowning Aegon within 24 hours of Viserys' death. In Fire and Blood, the announcement of the king's death and Aegon's coronation were actually two separate events. The first, the announcement, 
came 10 days after Viserys's death. Uh, we mentioned earlier that they basically just left his body to rot while they went about laying their plans for the usurpation. Uh, but 10 days later, riders went out into the city to spread the word. It says, Riders went forth on pale horses to spread the word to the people of King's Landing, crying, King Viserys is dead, long live King Aegon. Hearing the cries, some wept, whilst others cheered, but most of the small folk stared in silence, confused and wary, and now and again a voice cried out, long live our queen. Uh, the coronation and uh, un held an unspecified number of days later was held in the dragon pit because, quote, the pit's thick walls, strong roof, and towering bronze doors made it defensible should traitors attempt to disrupt the ceremony. Kind of regret that we didn't get at least a handful of people looking confused and crying out for Rhaenyra, but here we are. Like I said, there were quite a few changes in this episode. While you know, in House of the Dragon, these greens surely do e expect a challenge, which is why they're rushing through this uh, coronation so quickly. Perhaps they even anticipated that one might come from outside, as stated in Fire and Blood, as the bells rang out to celebrate Aegon's accession. Surely none of them, well, maybe one of them, expected the challenge to come from beneath their feet. Aegon is enjoying being crowned more than he'd imagined. And as Lady Gwyn said, there's a brief moment where this kid who feels that he's been unloved is suddenly very loved by this crowd through their cheers. Perhaps he wasn't expecting that reaction. He looks very happy. And Alicent manages a smile too. Then, from out of nowhere, rocks go flying and there's a big puff of dust and the small folk begin to scream. That's right, it's Maylees. Rainies had been swept into the dragon pit along with all the small folk and managed to slip away into the lower levels to find Maylees as all eyes were on Aegon being anointed by Septon Eustace. Remember that Alison had told her to ring the bells when she had to answer back at the Red Keep? Well, this seems to be an answer as the bells ring out for Aegon's coronation. She wanted to desperately, de desperately to escape with her dragon, not only for the importance of dragons in any upcoming hostilities, but also no doubt due to their lifelong bond. However, given that the dragon pit was full for the coronation and all exits heavily guarded, as indicated by Sir Eric, the path of least resistance seemed to have been to crash through a solid stone floor and cause all kinds of mayhem. Small folk are swept away and no doubt some of them died in the chaos of the rockfall and then Maylee's swatting them away with her tail. So it certainly wasn't a maneuver without casualties. I guess from Rainey's perspective, imprisoned and with her life under threat, this was the only way she could manage an escape with her dragon. By now, the dragon is trying to turn around. Small folk are running to the door and through the carnage, we see Rainies looking absolutely badass in her armor on Maylees. 
The Greens look absolutely shocked and order the doors to be opened, otherwise they're going to be trapped with the with Maylies. At this point, they are they are trapped and at the mercy of Rainies, who only has to say one word to roast all of them. Alison's first thought is of a daughter, and she says, get Helena. As we mentioned earlier, Helena had been uttering a prophecy about a beast beneath the boards, so this could be what she was seeing in her dreams. Coming face to face with the raging dragon would be frightening enough for anyone, but given Helena seems so timid, it must have been especially terrifying if if this was the what she was prophesying in her dreams and she, she could see this moment coming. And there she was not being able to do anything about it and watching the scenario unfold in front of her. Book fans did have other ideas what the prophecy meant and so do other people. But, you know, all the book fans were probably wrong because, of course, this moment doesn't happen in the books. So if this is the answer, then there was no way of foreseeing that this would turn out the way it did. As Melly's inches forward and the music reaches a crescendo, Rainies is on the verge of saying Dracaris. You can just see it. She's just about to do it. The camera goes to Alison, who closes her eyes, and I think she's expecting to get roasted any second. While the dragon lets out a sonorous scream that would not be out of place in Jurassic Park, she does not release any flame. Rainies has decided to show mercy. Is it a mistake to show mercy? Is it better to murder a few people to save many? Can you justify this sort of killing when it might serve the greater good? All of those questions come to us at this moment, questions that have been floating around in this episode and, of course, are well-rooted in the original book series. We've already touched upon it, but to add some... Yeah, Ned Stark, for example, believes that mercy is never a mistake. And he says that, says as much to Renly Baratheon, whereas Renly's brother Stannis would gladly sacrifice a child to protect the realm. Here, Rainey's, according to an Eve Best interview and information presented in the behind the episode, chooses to show the Green faction mercy on account, in part, of Alicent being a mother who wants to protect her kids and to this, keep in mind that we see Aegon sort of cowering behind his mother in this scene. Another thing to keep in mind, and this is courtesy of one of our patrons, Sir Gladworth, is that George has recently confirmed that there's an yet unintroduced third son of Viserys and Alicent serving as a squire with the High Towers in Old Town. So murdering his entire family would undoubtedly set up Daron, who, a dragon rider himself, as a challenge uh, to Rhaenyra. So she wouldn't have exactly solved everything by doing this. Daron still exists. And so anyway, after her moment of mercy, Rhaenys wheels Maelies around to fly off through the doors, presumably to find Rhaenyra on Dragonstone and fill her in to all this information that's being withheld. Time will tell if that was a decision that Rainey's will later regret. One thing's for sure, she will not get the opportunity to take out almost the entire Green faction in one fell swoop again. Now, surely, 
we're headed to civil war instead. Okay, so there is our left to right analysis, but we've got plenty more to say. We've got a couple of featurettes for a bit of fun, and then we've got a spoilers section, and then we'll um, address some super chats. So why don't we begin with our featurette called Dragon Watch? Lady Gwyn, how was Dragon Watch today? Well, this week on Dragon Watch, Yoke Boy, I have just one word for you. It's Maylees. What do you What do you think, Emily? Do you like Maylees' appearance there? You know, I I certainly wasn't expecting it. Definitely a departure from the book canon, but I think that they made it work with the themes of this episode that they were exploring. And I think we were all just really excited that we got to see Rainey's in her armor on her dragon up close this season. I, I know Lady Gwyn was. Okay, so let's move on to our champ or chump. We name a character that's won the day and we also name a chump who has, you know, made a fool of themselves or has done something weird. So, Lady Gwyn, who is your champ of the week? Well, again, I'm going to be quite uh, quite brief with <laughs> my selection in this category. All hail the bee. Just Lord Beesbury for standing up for his principles, for... Uh, pointing out exactly what was going on and uh, not backing down from accusing the queen of some, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty serious misdeeds. Uh, gotta love him. 76 years old and speak truth to power. So RIP Lord Beesbury. Okay. So there's always many chumps in an episode, but let's, we try to keep things lighthearted. So, Emily, what's who's your chump of the week? Yeah, so many chumps to choose from this episode. I, I like, wanted to say Otto or Larys or so many more. But honestly, I think, like, you know, in the spirit of, of being chumpy, this is meant to be a little bit more of a lighthearted section. I don't really want to cover a bunch of horrific misdeeds. So chatting with our pal and, and chat moderator, Egg6, he gave me the idea, and I think I'm going to go with Kristen Cole this week, you know, of course, for his actions against the bee, uh, his Lord Commander, and, you know, most importantly, for being Westeros' biggest hypocrite. Okay, so now I want to introduce the spoiler section because we try and keep it spoiler free. So anyone who hasn't read the books can still enjoy the show, but we do sort of have to bite our tongue sometimes. So here we go, Lady Gwyn. Spoilers all books. Yeah, spoilers all books. Why don't we start with you, Lady Gwyn? What what spoilery topics do you want to get off your chest? Well, I didn't have anything really significant that I wanted to talk about today. So I am going to talk about the Loyal Six, who are the nobles uh, identified in Fire and Blood that were beheaded for refusing to bend the knee to Aegon, along with a number of others, uh, having their heads mounted above the city gates as a warning to anyone else who would support the Blacks. And here's a passage for you. Lord Hayford, Lord Merriweather, Lord Hart, Lord Buckler, Lord Caswell, and Lady Fell valued their sworn word more than their lives and were beheaded each in turn along with eight landed knights and two score servants and retainers. Their heads were mounted on spikes above the city's gates. 
uh, Lord Merriweather from and Lord Caswell from The Reach and Lady Fell of the Stormlands did feature in this episode. We talked about them while uh, Lords Hayford and Hart from the Crownlands and Lord Buckler from the Stormlands so far appear only in Fire and Blood. In spite of the executions, all of their houses would continue to support Rhaenyra. In particular, the homes of House Caswell and Merriweather, Bitterbridge and Longtable respectively, will be significant locations during the war to come, with Longtable besieged at one point by the Greens' uh, massive Hightower army in the south, and uh, Bitterbridge being the location of the death of Prince of well, King Aegon's son, Prince Melor, one of the more horrific events of the war, as I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, I think it's also noteworthy, if we can dig in a little bit, that a number of these houses supported um, King Magor three generations earlier in his war against his nephew Aegon the Uncrowned before all changing sides to Jaehaerys. So I have to wonder if their staunch support for Rhaenyra now came as a result of their uh, kind of ancestral shame at backing the wrong horse in that previous civil war. They, more than anyone, would have reason to know what Magor really was. And given that and the Greens' constant comparisons of Rhaenyra and Daemon to Magor, I think that it's telling that people who actually, or houses that actually supported Magor in the past are loyal to Rhaenyra and Daemon. Not because they thought Magor was great, but because they know just how terrible he was. And uh, in spite of that, they're still supporting Rhaenyra and Daemon. So finally, we get to Lord Hart, uh, who was executed for his support of Rhaenyra. His relationship to a member of his house named Lady Hazelheart isn't specified, but whatever it is, whether he's an uncle, a grandfather, or a cousin, he is definitely a relation of Lady Hazel and her two-year-old daughter, Daenerys Valerian, who is the future wife of King Aegon III. And even as these executions are taking place in King's Landing, she is growing up presumably happily with her Valerian family on Driftmark. So it was obviously a connection with House Valerian uh, between with House with the Hearts. So yet another reason for them to be steadfast for Rhaenyra. I know that's a lot of history and genealogy, but I love how much George fleshes out these histories of even tertiary or lesser characters and houses to make their motivations believable, giving us you know, very much fleshed out uh, characters and stories, breathing life into his world by threading those uh, stories throughout generations of Westerosi history. Uh, I just can't get enough of the world building. So <laughs> this week I'm talking about the twins. Was that not specific enough for you guys? Which twins? <laughs> there are more than a few sets in Hot D, but I am talking about Sirs Eric and Eric Cargill who, according to George, were inspired by uh, brothers from Arthurian tales. Their role in the story is, I don't want to say minor, but short, perhaps. It's very impactful, a microcosm of the conflict that is the looming civil war, and a direct view into how families are ripped apart in the conflict. Not just House Targaryen that's divided, <laughs> uh, as we'll see both with House Cargill and, and many others to come. 
In the books, Sir Eric with an A sides with Alicent. That's actually a really good way to remember who's who, by the way. A for Alicent, A for Eric. And Sir Eric with an E sides with Rhaenyra. In Fire and Blood, the reasoning behind this is are opaque, though we do hear from Mushroom that Eric apparently caught Damon and Rhaenyra abed together. This obviously happened a little different in the show, having that gone down in uh, brothel elsewhere. Sir Eric was not a character at that point. Sir Eric with an E serves as Rhaenyra's sworn shield in the book rather than Aegon's. And we're meant to believe that him serving Rhaenyra was a big factor in, you know, choosing her side. The show did a somewhat clever inversion here using his closeness to Aegon as Aegon's sworn shield to drive him away from the Greens. In Fire and Blood, the brothers ultimately do fall on opposite sides of the conflict. The Queen's plot brings the brothers together one final time. According to Fire and Blood, Sir Criston orders Eric with an A to Dragonstone, meaning to impersonate his twin in order to gain easy access. That's kind of a clever plan. The goal there was to carry out what we actually saw Otto suggesting in this episode, a quick death to Rhaenyra and her children to clear the field for Aegon cleanly. But Eric was unlucky in this, uh, running into his twin on the way to carry out his fell deeds, and the brothers fought an epic duel to the death. It's said in stories and songs that they fought for hours before dying in one another's arms, yet Mushroom claims the whole ordeal was much quicker, you know, a few fatal blows in a few seconds. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see if the twins are yet to meet again and whether history sides with the singers or the fool on this. Next week, we head into the season finale. This is very exciting stuff. It's been a great season. And, you know, they're going to go out with a bang, I think. There's discussions going on about how far into the Dance of the Dragons next episode is going to go. Having centered this episode around the Greens, I definitely expect to see a lot of Rhaenyra and Daemon on Dragonstone and see what they're up to. In the books, the news of Aegon's crowning enrages Rhaenyra, which brings on an early labor and the babe is still born and has dragon-like features. Rhaenyra blames the Greens and refuses diplomacy. And so the Dance of the Dragons begins. She organizes a black council and banners are called. And so I'm guessing in the next episode, we're going to see this scramble from both sides, trying to cement allegiances that are going to split the realm in two. The conflict will really heat up, though, when Lucerys is sent to Storm's End to treat with Boros Baratheon, only to find Aemond is already there. Eventually, the pair get into an epic fight over Shipbreaker Bay on their dragons in Fire and Blood. It's one of the most memorable scenes in the text, I think. Of course, Aemond rides Vega, and so he's a, a huge advantage, and... He seeks to get revenge over Luke for his missing eye. The Dance of the Dragons is really going to kick off when the two clash over the waves. And it's going to be a very exciting and dramatic spectacle on our screens with dragon versus dragon action that, you know, we've all been waiting for, really. I think this scene is going to happen next week because it would be the perfect hook to bring viewers back to the show for season two. After all of this setup, finally the gloves are going to come off 
and will be in the no-holds-barred Civil War territory that is going to grip viewers of House of the Dragon for the two or three seasons to come. And boy, am I looking forward to that. Okay, thank you all very much for tuning in tonight. And I want to thank Emily. Thank you, guys. I can't believe we're almost through the season. You guys can find me on Twitter at at Emily of the Eerie. Also this weekend, I'll be joining uh, two of our chat mods, San Rixian on her Twitch channel, along with our other chat mod and graphics extraordinaire, Egg6, to uh, do a Patreon drawing stream. You don't have to be a patron to watch the stream, but San Rixian will be taking you know art requests from, from her patrons and drawing them live. We hang out. We have a good time. So uh, if that sounds fun, that's Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern, if you can join us. And yeah, thank you to all of you for tuning in tonight. It's been a great season and we look forward to the finale. We will lead out Lady Gwyn by saying a special thank you to all of our patrons who keep our ship going with their patronage. Thanks to all of you. Take it away, Lady Gwyn. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaster Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenarion, The White Storm, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.